Welcome to the Mindful Mutiny Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Van Wert, therapist, CEO, and high-level coach. At Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps you from obtaining your highest potential. In this episode, what are you going to learn? You're going to learn what it takes to rise from poverty to prominence. You're going to listen to the story of an incredible person who has exercised such incredible humility and patience through her life to become a psychiatrist. And you're going to learn how to stay grounded on your path to the top. Please make sure that you're going and subscribing and liking and leaving reviews. That sort of thing really, really helps. Dr. Lolly Pia is an accomplished author and child and adolescent psychiatrist. Her memoir, The Fortune Teller's Prophecy, is available now on audible.com. Please go and get that. With a fascinating background spanning from Sri Lanka, Ghana, Wales, England, Pennsylvania, and California, she's been a teacher and even an embalmer, which she's going to get into, before pursuing medical school at UC Davis. Residing in Sacramento, California, she practices psychiatry and has garnered recognition for her literary contributions, including being a finalist in America's Next Great Author in 2022. Dr. Pia's insightful interview on the life of a psychiatrist has garnered over 65,000 views resonating with aspiring medical professionals and people who are getting into being psychiatrists and therapists and professionals. Dr. Pia, thank you so much for being on the Mindful Mutiny podcast. Nice to meet you again. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Pia, you and I, we worked together at the River Oak Center for Children a number of years ago. I got to know you. We had mutual clients, and I just loved your wonderful patient center approach and the way that you just truly, you you care about people, you spend time with them, you make time for them, and there was always time on your schedule for seeing people that really, really needed it. And so you've just, you've approached your career from a place of heart and a place of caring for people. Can you talk a little bit about your practice now and what it is that you do? Sure. So um, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it, Jeremy. Um, I love what I do. I work um, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist. So basically, my youngest kids are as young as four. My oldest ones are like 20 something, um, you know, and I, I, I see them for what's called medical management. But I always spend like the first five or 10 about on medical management and the rest of the time on everything else, because as you and I know, there's a whole lot more to it. So I work, I love working at River Oak. That's where we met Jeremy. Um, and what I like is that I have the team with me. So maybe I can only see a patient once a week, once in, or once a month. And in that time, I can talk like to the therapist, what happened when you were speaking to this kiddo? Did something else happen? So I like that ability that I have the whole team backing me. So if someone, someone on the team, let's say a therapist says, oh, you know, we are using patient PCIT, um, I'll say, oh, so you're working with the parent on this. And so together we work with a more cohesive um, approach to the, the, the patient. I only work three days a week, but I do like to spend a lot of time with each patient. Um, and, and I love what I do. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. One of the things that I work with people on is truly embracing their values. And you have a couple of values that you use in in how it is that you 
work with people. You, 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 you're so compassionate and you're so kind with people. And I, I, I loved how you didn't do any thinking about exactly what to prescribe until you really knew somebody's full story and full what 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 are the stressors what are the things that the child is going through what's the parental dynamics and everything like that can you talk a little bit about the values that you use as a person in just practicing as a doctor okay um in terms of my values, I think the most important thing is to alleviate suffering. And I remember when I first had patients, I was thinking, oh, you know, the parents are the enemy. It's all about the kiddo. But um, I realized that your your patients are your, the parents and everyone else. So um, when I meet people and I'm saying, hey, well, let's, let's do this evaluation, I usually do a two-hour evaluation, which in, involves the parents and the patients. And I, I tell the parents, you know, who are always nervous, like, oh, gosh, this doctor is going to medicate my, my my poor little kiddo. I say, you know, I do not like to medicate kids unless everything else fails or everything else has failed. So sometimes I can do this two-hour evaluation and say, I don't support medicine for your kiddo. So I usually debunk that myth that this person's going to, you know, put put my kids on pills. But what I do is I spend the time because I've already got information about that where the patient is coming from, the the, um, the notes from the hospitals, then the notes from the parents. And sometimes I have to do this over two sessions. And I always tell parents, you know, this is an ongoing learning. I'm just, it's just it's the tip of the iceberg that you're bringing today. I believe it takes months, maybe years sometimes to truly understand the dynamics. So I believe in, um, you know, taking care to really get a good history and then the other thing that you learn in, in school is you've got to learn to walk the tightrope of caring a lot, but not caring too much, in which case you'll be sobbing every time and not caring too little, you know, Jeremy. So um, it's really important to, to manage that tightrope for yourself as you hear all these stories. And I always, in my initial evaluation, try and talk to the child alone because often things come up that they have not told a single person. And that, to me, is the heart of, of getting to know someone. I see people as jigsaw puzzles, and it takes a lot of time to get all the pieces together. Well, your whole life has been this gigantic jigsaw puzzle or tapestry that, that you have written about in this wonderful, soulful book that is available now on audible.com. And it's called The Fortune Teller's Prophecy. And... I guess let's kind of go back. Where did you grow up? What was your life like? What? Where did you start out in life? Okay, it's a long story. So I hope you've got time. I um, started out, I was born in Sri Lanka, which is a little island off the coast of India. Yeah. And um, when I was six months old, my dad took me to, my dad's Hindu, my mom's um, Christian. Well, my dad snuck me out to a, a fortune teller who, who who told my dad, you know what, this girl, she's going to be a doctor of doctors. So we were, you know, in, in Sri Lanka, being a doctor is a big deal. So I was told from the time I could barely speak, you're going to be a doctor one day, you're going to be a doctor. Um, and I grew up, we can, we can talk about how I got into med school later. But anyway, I grew up in, in Ghana, and my parents grew up um, in Ghana. So they were there from the time I was six months to 20. 
I was in Ghana, in Kumasi, a little town about the size of Davis, California. Uh, actually, it's a bit bigger than that. But anyway, so I was there and went to school there and grew up uh, with my dad being an architect. My mom was um, a teacher. And those people, those, um, um, are, those um, are very highly revered. Being a, being a teacher is very highly revered. Anyway, all my friends growing up were from different countries. They were like me, sort of in Ghana, but able to go back every year to their countries. It could be England, New Zealand, could be wherever. And so that's how I grew up, getting to know the rest of the world, but sort of being in a weird place, as in I didn't really belong in the Ghanaian sense. I didn't really belong in the Sri Lankan sense because I'd left it. But I was there with all these other kids who really would go back to home home. And so you never really knew where home was. Um, and then I got into medical school um, in, in the Ghanaian system. It's like the British system where you um, don't get a first degree, but you just get a, you have to get into med school when you're like 17, 18. And so it was great. My dad was like, see, the, the fortune tells prophecy is coming true. So we were all excited. Um, I, I had actually preferred writing and those sorts of things. But anyway, so then what happened was the, 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 the economic situation in the country was getting worse and worse. By the time my parents decided we've got to leave, there was no sugar, no toothpaste, no, everything oh was gosh. not available. Yeah, it went. Um, so it was very hard. So you had to, which is a good thing. You had to know your community. If you knew your neighbor had bought a whole bunch of flour by waiting somewhere, you say, hey, I've got rice, you got flour. So it, it led to a kind of a bartering system. But yeah. it also led me to truly appreciate the value of community starting from there. So it was all set up. You know, we were going to go to America. My dad, um, his sister lives in Davis, California, or lived. And so the plan was the whole family would go there. And guess what? Halfway through med school, I could get a degree. It was called a master's of human biology, um, a bachelor's, sorry, a bachelor's of human biology. So I thought I'll go ahead and go to America with the family. And then how old I, are you at this point? 18, 19, I think. Okay. Gotcha. Sorry, by the time I I, I decided to leave, um, it was I was about 21, 20, 21. That's right. So so my dad got a green card for the whole family. And I was going to finish my final exams for the third year, then I'd have a bachelor's. And we knew in America, if you have a first degree, you can then apply to med school. So that was the grand plan. The family leaves, they go away in January of uh, when I was 20, 21, uh, 20. Uh, I'm trying to think about when it was. Not very good with numbers right now. <laughs> Anyway, so I decide I'm going to stay. And then just a few weeks before my final exams, the, there was political unrest. Um, there were a whole bunch of, you know, coups, stay, you know, stay back in the house. You couldn't, um, you couldn't, um, all the universities closed down. So I'm thinking, uh, hello, I just wanted to stay behind for this one test. And I waited and I was staying with friends from Germany. I was waiting and waiting and the months were going by, but the universities hadn't reopened. And I believe it was one of the first times in the country's history that so much political unrest was happening that they didn't open the universities. So uh, this, this realization was like, <laughs> every day we were scouring the papers, did they open, did they open? And so I decided, I'm done. I'm done waiting. I'm going to go to America and get back into school and 
do what it takes to try and apply to med school when I get there. That was the plan. So mm-hmm. I packaged, I said goodbye to Ghana, uh, goodbye to Kumasi and went to the capital, Accra, which was where the green card was. Went to pick up the green card and I went um, to the American embassy. This is kind of where my book starts actually, around that time. And they're like, uh, we have a problem here. And I said, a problem? And they said, yes, we've realized that we have made a mess with your green card. Your dad applied for you when you were under 21, but you are now past 21. So we're going. To, it won't work. And I said, um, but it's you bungled it, you know. So yes. And so basically, they're like, well, you can't, you can't, we can't, we can't do it. And I said, well, how long is it going to take to fix this? I've got my stuff packed in the suitcase. And they said, oh, it could take a year, two years. And I said, I have no money. I have no family. I have no place oh. to stay. My in, in Sri Lanka at the time, there was, I mean, we'd gone back and forth, but there was fighting. There was a civil war. Yes. War. I was essentially a refugee with no country to call home and, and and nowhere to stay and no income and no job. And so they bottom line um, told my dad, um, I mean, told me, well, do you have friends in other countries? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, do you, you know, someone in other, and so I said, England, I, I know some people and a long story short, I ended up being stuck in England for a year and a half, um, a year and a bit waiting for my green card and in England I'm not allowed to work I was just on extended visitor visas Ah. so so that's that's pretty much the story of leaving Ghana um, when I left and then a whole lot more happened after that profoundly frustrating it was and 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 so you're you're in you're in England what do you do actually Wales yeah do you stay with friends yes so I stayed with in Wales with friends that I had known before from Scotland so I stayed with them. They were wonderful. They opened up their home to me. They um, they had um, got an inn in the Gawa Peninsula, which is just extraordinarily beautiful. So I was living in this la-la land of beautiful surroundings, but missing my family like crazy. So every time little letters came from America, I was like, oh, I really want to be doing something with my life. Uh, yeah. So I ended up being uh, just volunteering to be an organ player in the church with like a few like... 10 octogenarians as my audience. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. Yeah, and, and it's just unspeakably beautiful there. I've been many times back there. Um, but I couldn't do anything. I, I couldn't play, play I couldn't um, play the piano. I couldn't, um, I just played the organ. And I just walked in the morning when my friends were busy at work. So no, I, I mean the 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 thing that kind of like rings to me now is that if this was occurring and you were stuck in a different nation and you needed to get started with a degree, there's always the online option that is available, but you're talking about a time when that was not what was done. And, uh, and so you're kind of stuck waiting. What was it like for you just waiting? Like, is this new life that I want going to happen? Is, was, was there a fear that you were going to end up back in Ghana? What was what was the fear for you in this? The fear was that I was wasting my life doing nothing. I like to be productive. I like to be doing things. And so just taking like miles long walks every day just felt like what's happening to my brain and mm. any thoughts of becoming a doctor were like 
gone <laughs> because mm-hmm. I knew even when I came to America, it would mean I'd have to go back, take prerequisites, get into get a degree, start up, you know, with foreign qualifications. Who's going to look at you? So gradually I was beginning to think that this is this is just a, a pl- time for plan B. And I didn't know what it was. Right. <laughs> and I felt like such a burden. My my friends never made me feel that. But they were paying for my house. My parents didn't have enough money to support me being there. I paid nothing for a year and a bit. They took me under their wing. What amazing people. They they are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so what what happens? Do you finally get the uh, green card that you need to go to the United States? And and what happens there? Yeah. So the complication is my ex-husband. So... (laughs) My okay. ex-husband is someone I met in Ghana and um, met again in, in in who came to visit my friends. Um, so we hooked up. And so when I came finally to America, um, it you know this my, my ex-husband John um, uh, was was thinking he wanted to be with me, and I was thinking, darn it, I just made it to America, you know. So um, and so it, it ended up being a very complicated chapter of my life. Because um, he eventually uh, married me. He came to America shortly after I had been here. And um, we went to um, England. And then I was married to him for some time after that. It, um, so it changed my life in that way. Um, but I came here thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to go back and get into classes. And I got into UC Davis. So I, I arrived in July of that year. I think it was 83, 84. Yeah. In July of '84, I arrived, and then I was—I got into UC Davis and was doing classes for a bachelor's in physiology. And then six months later, John comes and marries me and takes me back to England. So it was like this much. Oh my <laughs> gosh! And so my parents were like, "Lally, you just got here, and now you going to have to—I don't know." Anyway, so my life took a turn then. Was this a was this a a youthful decision? Yeah, it okay. was a youthful. People make mistakes. That was a big, big bad mistake. He was like nineteen years older than me, my parents' okay. age. <laughs> it was yeah. a bad mistake. Yeah, and 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 so you're you're married. You moved back to, uh, was it Wales or uh, Canterbury? Okay, okay, and what what goes on there? I have nothing to do. I'm back at square one. So I am the typical housewife. Um, I see. He's a a professor of accounting over there. And um, I I cook and I play piano six hours a day. And um, I'm basically, he said, Lally, we're going to go back to America. So he had me um, apply for him to come to America on a green card. All right. We were waiting for him to come to America, which happened in a year and a half. So he could Wait, we're, we're talking about several years of, um, it has to be frustrating to you just yeah. in this time when it just feels like a half a step forward and then three steps back on a lot of stuff. And yeah. you fall in love, you marry a man, it doesn't turn out to be the, the life that you really feel in your heart is right for you. Exactly. And so then are you still married to him when you come back to the United States? Yes. Okay. And then uh-huh. we have nowhere to stay. So for the next five years, we're living with my parents because he's not able to find a job. And he's, um, yeah, so we, it just becomes a different life. 
Um, and it's it's all chronicled in my book. It's been, you know, narrating the book. It was painful. I had to say, stop. <laughs> Let's not talk about this for a little bit. Um, but but that's what happened. And when we when we came back, I actually went back to UC Davis and I finished my bachelor's in human biology. And um, then I went to Pennsylvania with my ex-husband um, to do a master's in uh, physiology in Pennsylvania. So I at least got my, I, I wasn't thinking med school. I was thinking, darn it, let me just get a job and go and find find work. Um, so I've got some questions for you sure. about okay. this period of time in your life, because you're, um, you have these dreams, you have this prophecy that is kind of hanging in the culture of your family and everything like that. So you're dealing with years worth of kind of setbacks and not being exactly where it is that you wanted to see your future going. And how, I mean, what was it like inside you when you were just kind of watching time go by, like month after month going, what, what's, what am I 10 years from now based upon who I am now? You're talking about when I was in England. Uh, when when you had moved back to the United States. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I had moved back to the United States, um, I was starting to question who I was. You know, John, my 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 husband then, um, was making all the decisions. He was like 20 years older than me. And so he would say, yeah, we're going to do this. And then I'm going to go to Pennsylvania. And I was just sort of along for the ride. And I was starting to think, I wish I could be more, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor now, but I was wishing that I could be more, do something, um, not just be a housewife and tag along. Um, and so when uh, people told me, yeah, I'd say, yeah, the fortune teller told me when I was a kid, I was going to be a, a doctor. I'm laughing, you know, look at me. I, 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 it's such a long road. There's no way I'm going to go into that. But there was a part of me that felt I could do more and not just be a backdrop. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds like it always lived in you. And then <laughs> something something inside you made you start deciding, I need to make some big decisions for myself. I need to start going in the direction of what my values actually are. And and so, you know, what what was awakening in you during this period of time where you were starting to recognize that you needed to embrace your own value? So it started with basically the the breakup of my marriage in a way. Um, I had um, uh, now moved to Pennsylvania and I had two small children. One of them was two years old. One of them was a few months old. And I, I said, um, you know, John had gone to do an, some kind of interview in England. And so I said, I'll go and stay in California um, until you got, you come back. I'll have someone to help with the baby, my, my mom and dad. So I came to California and I got the call. <laughs> There's a chapter in my memoir called The Call. Um, <laughs> This was a call from, so I'm sitting in the, you know, in the, in, in, in the room and then the, the children are playing around and I get this call from John from oh. England and he says, they offered me a job and I accepted it. And I said, what? And I hung up, <laughs> you know, it was really, yeah. yeah. And that was a moment when I realized 
we are not communicating. This relationship is not right. Yeah. But I can't believe he just expects me to pick up a phone and say, cool, when are we going? To My children had got used to the California lifestyle and the support. Even though we were living in Pennsylvania, I was giving them the childhood I had with family and everybody. And he was talking about leaving to England and taking the children. And it, the, the enormity of that struck me. So the reason I think this is very important is had that call not happened, I might have stayed in that toxic relationship longer. There's more about it, obviously, in the book, but yes. it was a moment when I had to make a decision that evening. And I still remember how it's, it's all in the book about how I just go out into the backyard and I'm thinking about everything. And I have not just me to think about, but my kids. And it's it's such a humongous decision to think, you know, I don't want to be a person who gets a divorce or anything like that, because in my cultural values from Sri Lanka and family values, I was the eldest and I was the one who was going to tell everyone, this is how you do it. I put on such a good face. Apart from my very close friends, everyone thought the marriage was doing just fine. <laughs> so it was a huge decision I made that night after the call um, to go a different way, even though it was going to be harder. I thought, I can't put my children through this. It had just not become very, very friendly in the in the house. I decided I had to make a change. So I'm I'm thinking that what we're talking about is the late 1980s. Um in in you having it's 94. Parents, 94. Okay. Yeah. Parents and a family that have very strong cultural values about what family actually is. Yes. And you uh, and and what a woman is, and so there you are, um, looking at being a single mother in the 1990s, uh, uh, first generation uh, immigrant to the United States. You have two children, and are you working at this point? Oh no. Okay. All right. So you got to. You have to start from square square one. Right. You got some education. Um, and now you're as alone as you've kind of ever been with, right. you know, with the exception, obviously, of your family and children. But you are you, you, you've got the world ahead of you and you're starting from square one, one, one. Uh, <laughs> and so you've you've got you've got some decisions to make and nothing is going to be easy. Did you have this sense that you felt free and that you could now move forward unencumbered or were you scared? scared as hell. I was scared. I, I didn't even have a home, right? We didn't have a house because we'd been living with my parents. Yeah. So I had no house and I was, I, I actually now had two degrees. I had a bachelor's and a master's in physiology. So I figured, well, I could find a job, but what about the kids? What about money? Is he going to support us? Because I refused to go. It, it was scary. Yeah, I imagine so. I I mean it's a lot of responsibility and and I would imagine that your family would be as helpful as they could be they in were. things yeah you know but but at the same time you not only have to kind of figure out income but you also you had to know at this point that you're brilliant that your mind works in an amazing way you don't know this no no okay. no, no so so when did you discover this. <laughs> I've never discovered that. I don't think <laughs> I've never discovered this. No, I, I just, 
I just realized I had better get my act together and take my first steps because John, in a way, had been like a parent. He was 19 years older. Yeah, so sure. because of that, I was trying to take my first steps and I knew I could count on my family for help with everything. I just had to find my way. And that's when I decided, you know, and then money stopped coming in, you know, and had to try and work out how I'm going to get a divorce and had to figure out applying to so many different things to get jobs. I even started, I was really upset. I applied for a a, a job um, um, selling seeds in Woodland, which is near us. And yeah. they turned me down. I'm thinking, darn it, I got a bachelor's degree and a master's. But I think they thought I was overqualified. So back to your thought of brilliance, I thought uh, I'm not very brilliant or smart if I can't get a job selling seeds. <laughs> but I just started applying to everything I could think about. And I had to get on medical and welfare because he was not sending money. He sent little bits here and there, but it was really hard to manage. Um, so I got medical and food stamps and women infant childcare and all of that. And what struck me was how warm and caring those people were. I was at a very, very sensitive part of my life. And so imagine standing there with your food stamps thinking, you know, I've got food stamps. I'm just embarrassed. And it was awkward. But at the same point, at the same time, the the people who I went to work with, the county workers, the they were just the warmest, most compassionate people. And that made such a difference. You know, people think, yeah, there's all these losers on welfare. And I was one of those losers on welfare. And yet they never made me feel that way. So I felt such gratitude. I, I felt like I've just come to this country. And here I am already taking all this in and taking all this money and support. I even got support with my children who were in daycare. And that's lots of money. So I just, I kept saying to them, you know, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, because had they not helped me, I couldn't have got a job. I couldn't have done anything. Um, it was it was a hard time, and yet it was an incredibly gratifying time because of these um, workers. <clears throat> I, I I love your thankfulness uh, in this. I, I I love the 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 humility in that, uh, and also for those that are listening here, we're talking about Yolo County, right? Is that where That's we're right. talking about? Yolo County is rural. There's a lot of farmland out there. You're more likely to have a John Deere dealership than a Bugatti v- dealership out there. It's a uh, a place that that's uh, a bit of kind of a, a it's a it's got a lot of greasy spoon town uh, greasy spoon diners, you know, and and it's a place that you wouldn't necessarily look at and go. There's a lot of opportunities here for somebody who wants to you know, get a, a higher level education and all of these sorts of things. But still in your mind, you have this as a, as, as an aspiration for yourself or kind of what, right. what are you, what are you thinking? I'm thinking I've got to get money and I've got to get off this. Um, I've got to get off this, this welfare. So I um, actually looked at a job um, feeding rats in UC Davis and it was great. Oh, a lab. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I thought, hey, it's a lab. It's using my background. And it was research on rats. And then I found out how much um, I was squeamish about I hate animals being harmed in any way like that. So it made me realize I cannot do research long term because I felt for every rat. And, um, you know, one day it's in my memoir, but I was looking at this rat food and thinking, oh, I could just fall into this rat food and, you know, be be rat chow. (laughs) And this was not me. 
And so I then, um, uh, within a few months, got a job as um, a donated body program. I am the um, director of the donated body program. And that was another sort of place in my life where it paid $300 more a month. So I was like, yay. But the downside was every morning you'd have to go and look at one of two coolers and see who died last night. So actually, that's where my memoir starts, because I'm thinking, this is not doctor of anything, but I am going to work with dead bodies. And um, so I was embalming bodies, I was um, sectioning human bodies. So I had a huge freezer full of human body parts. So I alone would be taking off heads and knees and shipping them out to, to different places. But the money was much better um, than my previous job. So um, that was another point where I was really thinking I'm in a dead end job, but uh, <laughs> uh, at least I was making an income and gradually I was making so much more. I was saying, hey, you know, to the people who are giving me um, welfare, I was on welfare, but I was saying, hey, I'm gradually getting more money and I can get off welfare. So to me, even that was a huge accomplishment to feel like I'm paying into this now. Um, yeah, so I did that for three years. Yeah. I, was, was the uh was the work on bar bodies just emotionally hard on you? Yes. In fact, it was so hard that within I think less than a month I was um uh, having nightmares. I dreamt that my my daughter my sister was being embalmed oh. and I just like, "Hey, can you stop this?" and I said, "It's it's irreversible. Sorry." And I even dreamt I was embalming my dog. So, you oh, know, wow. I was in a imagine I'm in a basement, right? And there's the embalming table and paraphernalia is out there. But um, there also there's a huge room with dozens and dozens of dead bodies on shelves. So I had to walk through that every day. And this is solo work and then, you know, embalm bodies. And so I decided I'm done. I don't care how much this job, you know, is, is I'm going to give my give my notice. Um, but that's when someone, my, my supervisor, Dr. Kumari, she said to me, Lali, this is hard for anybody. You know, you don't normally see dead people every day. And just give it a bit longer. And I said, well, can you get me someone to help? And she said, okay, you get, we'll, I'll look and see. And basically I got a helper. So psychologically, it wasn't that the work was difficult. It was just emotionally draining. So, um, and that's another story about how I got someone who worked with me at the um, Baskin Robbins ice cream. Uh, it's another story. It's a kind of a segue. <laughs> go but for it, it. You want me to go for it? Okay. So when I, before I was, when I was in England early, when I was in California earlier, I needed a job for the summer and I was working for Baskin Robbins here in Davis. They paid me like, it was a lot of money, $17 an hour to go and um, decorate ice cream cake, cakes um, here in Davis. And so I was doing it and loving it. And then I did it for a summer. And then that was, and my supervisor was someone called Bob, who was Bob Ernesty, who's was my, my boss. So he's paying me 17 bucks an hour. Let's fast forward to now I'm stuck with the dead bodies and, and looking for someone to help me. So I'm taking a walk. You know, I'm still thinking I need someone to help me. And, and they gave me five bucks an hour to hire someone. I meet Bob, who is the person who was in the um, ice cream place. And he's now thinking he wants to go to nursing school. And I say, hey, Bob want to work for me you can work at uc davis and i'll give you five bucks an hour and believe it or not he said sure and for him that was a, a moment that was important for him so 
here people meet me. We're both, you know, cutting our bodies and say, how did you meet? And I tell them the story of he was paying me 17 an hour and now I'm paying him five an hour to cut up bodies. So we he worked with me all the time I was there and he went on to nursing school and he's a nurse now working for UC Davis. I mean, I, I'm just thinking how random it is that, that happened. Of course. But, yeah, but but when I knew someone is there, you know, I, I put napkins over the head when I'm taking heads off. Um, it was so much easier that someone else was there. And, and I, I transformed the place. I, I had even third and fifth graders come in for tours. I talked to people about how much you can do when you're, you die. After you're dead, your body keeps teaching. We had people who are you know, dead 30 years before, and I'm still using their body parts to teach med students. So I, gave, I made a huge presentation every year and, and talked to you know, students, because you can learn a lot from death about life, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I went to bed um, after doing that job. I still am up till almost midnight every night. And I, I don't sleep enough because, hey, you could be dead. So <laughs> it did change my psyche some. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that would have a huge uh, impact. And and I mean, what, what did this do to you spiritually as far as like, as you're talking about the um the beyond death value of of a person and you're talking about it in the physical sense and everything like that but i i imagine that there was some amount of you uh and and your spiritual journey uh in in this evolving and growing and gaining meaning and so forth i mean was there was there any part of that that played a role in 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 you moving forward at that point or or even now hard to say i'm not really a very spiritual person in the sense of oh i believe in this kind of, you know this christianity or hinduism or anything um i just believe there is so much good within people and it just needs to be harnessed it could start with a simpler thing as i believe in myself but i just believe i can learn so much from the good in other people that's the only spirituality I just have honestly, you say I'm I'm grateful, but I have felt very grateful um, for what people teach me because when you work with a patient, they're taking you into their life. So I'm living a life I couldn't have lived otherwise through them. To me, that's a journey. That's if you call that spiritual, it's like take me where your signs lead, show me where your monsters are. You know, that to me is so cool. You're entering the world, the realm of someone who's abused. Because, you know, you, you you just learn what their reality is like. And, you know, some people say there's God in everyone. I kind of believe that. I just believe we have to find it. And, and that's the beginning of what my work is. It's to try and figure out what they can teach me. I'm not just the, you, this is, uh, I'm not like that. I'm learning constantly. And the day I don't want to learn, I'll quit. And that's why, that's why I only work three days a week. Because I think that the, the toll this takes on your spirit when you hear, bad story after bad story after bad story, it takes a toll on you. And if you then have four days to just let it go, um, that was the training. In the training, you you get to learn how to draw that boundary and not work and, and not take that in later. So that's kind of a roundabout answer to your question. I don't know if I completely answered it. <laughs> no, you did. You did. You okay. did. For you, it's about the spirit in people. Exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. It's about the, the, the spirit of... of life and and goodness and possibility 
Uh, and a journey yeah. and my journey to help them find it if they haven't found that because I learn from their journey every patient teaches me something new yeah so you're you're are you pondering going to med school at this point when you're uh, working with uh, bodies or where are you at then no 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 um, my story is full of people who help me find that but I was just like joking like yeah right Maybe that's what the fortune teller meant. Here I am with dead bodies all day. Maybe that kind of doctor. <laughs> um, so it was fulfilling because I, I made an impression with the um, with the students and I had these talks. But what happened was one day I was, um, it's in my memoir also, obviously. Um, I was cutting bodies with um, someone who was my, um, it was actually the children's pediatrician, Dr. Doug Gross, who then was also um, working for UC Davis. And he knew me because he worked in the anatomy department. And so we were preparing bodies together. And then he just looked at me and said, you know, you know, you ever think about med school again? And I said, ha ha, I'm 32. Are you kidding? And he said, no, I'm not kidding. You know, UC Davis takes in older people. And that sparked an interest in me like, what? Could I do it again? Could I go through the whole nine yards? And he said, hey, I'd write a letter for you if you want, because, you know, we like working with you. You're dependable, blah, blah, blah. And so that set something going that night when I got back and I just thought of how much I had actually wanted really to be a doctor, but put it away as it's impossible because life hadn't allowed that path to happen. And that's when I actually went for it. I thought, oh, I'll have to, you know, I'm older now. I'll have to go ahead and take Kaplan and learn all this basic stuff. But it's kind of, you know, Jeremy, it's like you work on you work on so much that the wheel starts to open itself itself up to possibilities. So I thought, why not? Right? This is the idea of let me try. And so I did. I mean, and that was my path. I mean, it took me a year or a bit after that. But I felt on a mission again. And even then, because I'd had so many things go south, um, I thought if it doesn't work, I'll, you know, wait a year and I'll apply again if I have to. And so it was really cool how I just decided I can handle it. I can handle disappointment because when bad things have happened, you either just get crushed or you think, how do I get out of this? How do I find a way? Yeah. So. Yeah. You, and you're, you're, you're being encouraged here and you're yes. 32. Cause I've heard this before where you get, you get to a certain age and it's not a good idea to go to med school. It's, it's a very long thing. It's very taxing. You've got children and it begins to feel more and more not possible for people, but it is possible. And right. so you, you apply and were you surprised when you got in? <laughs> yeah. At first I was rejected. And then um, Dr. Grosser just did, you know, let me write a letter. Come on. You got into Irvine for an interview. Come on. And so even with that, I was like, oh, see, there you go. It's not going to work. But I applied again and I got in that same. Yeah, I got in um, and I, I was shocked. I was screaming. It's all I, I, in my memoir, <laughs> in the details. I was in my car. Just I'm glad I didn't hit anybody, but I was just so, so happy. It was such a long road. I imagine so. And and um was was graduate or not graduate school, was medical school really, really difficult? Or did you find yourself really grasping the concepts and getting it and sprinting through it? Yeah, it was so hard because of the two kids. Of course okay. I had some help, 
but and I was able to live in a rented place um, uh, across the um, street from my mom so I could leave the, the baby monitor with her and, and say hey I'll, I'll go to the shop and get something but I was starting to get at least a sense of some financial security but medical school was crazy because you know my younger daughter Shanti was having problems with um, uh, her urinary system and I was going to the ER so you know you get into med school thinking hey here we go and then everyone knows so much you're with these bright people and you're thinking yes. oh my god these people are bright so who am I because all my life you know I'd be the top person in this class or get the highest grade but here you're with all those people who've had the highest grade and everything so then if you then go to the ER and you're not um with the um uh, your, your school for a little bit or you're trying to read a book to the kids and then you're falling asleep on that's what I was doing I was reading to the kids trying to, I was trying to be super person and I was not, it was not working. So more than, I think uh, less than two years later, I was like ready to quit med school. I was thinking that well, I don't know what that fortune teller was smoking, but I'm not ready for this. I'm not cut out to be this. And, and that's another reason why I've written the memoir because I'm sure there's other people in med school who, who feel like they want to give up. And yes. you think of the disgrace, you think of, oh, I'll let my parents down, the only doctor in the family. And I just, I felt so down. I, I, I wanted to quit. I was, and UC Davis was fantastic. They said, you know, we can give you a little bit more time. There's a, a program where you can take it over four years, five years instead of four, you know. And so I thought, should I or should I give up right now? That was another moment in my life. You know, uh, just as an aside, um, I'm working with a person who is going through this right now, oh. and this person showed me the inside of the the all of the test materials and all the things that need to be memorized and everything like that, and it is absolutely astonishing. Just you know, in in medical school, just imagine having to memorize thousands and thousands and thousands of small facts in order to pass these various exams and pass the ultimate exam that gets you, you know, uh, across into being a doctor and, and all of that. And these, these facts and figures, uh, minor yeah. and major, there, there's, there, there's a mind blowing amount of topics, subtopics, and and words that that the normal person has not ever heard of that mm -hmm. you need to not only know but you also need to know how to treat it and what to prescribe for it and how to make a referral for it and you might have a a one thing like hepatitis a b c and d e f and all the different ones and you have to understand all of the different ways to treat these things and all of the different iterations of them and in in what way they are or are not uh contagious and these sorts of different things. It, I was stunned by the unbelievable amount of stuff that just need you need to retain. You need yeah. to learn them uh, and you, you need to be able to, you know, essentially regurgitate them on tests and, and so forth. That had to be, you know, you've got two children, You've you 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 know got kind of a complicated life because you're doing med school, you've got you know children to raise, you're trying to be a mother. Mm -hmm. And redo them and everything like that. Are you are are you having trouble retaining things at this point and and in the work in the in um, the study? 
not retaining as much as it was just the sheer volume I didn't have a chance to get to. So, you know, I'd come back and because this always happened to us, we were made the most important thing about in my family. So I had to spend time with my children. and I loved it, you know, reading to them, doing things for them, eating together. And so then by then, as I finished reading to them, I would be so tired, I wouldn't be able to get the chance to do all the reading I was supposed to do for the next day. So that was where I would, you know, I just find I'd be slumped over falling asleep in the hallway or, and so I didn't have the time. It was never difficult because one thing you don't realize is that it's so, it's so challenging, but you're learning about your own body. You're learning about what makes it work and everything builds on everything. The physiology leads to this, leads to that. So it's fun when it's, when you're doing it, but I was not doing the work because my time was so limited. So that was what it was. It was never that the work was too challenging because I could retain that, but not the sheer volume because I hadn't got to it all. And I still remember one night thinking the exam's tomorrow and I'm going to try and finish this whole book. <laughs> like dream on, you're not that smart, Larry. <laughs> so um, it just got, so, so, so to go on with what happened then was I was going to quit. I had decided I'm done, you know, and I went, I, I didn't know how to tell my mom. But I, I wanted to tell her because for, for my family, it was a huge deal. I got into med school and I thought she was going to try and tell me, try this or do harder, do this and work. And she is just the reason I did this. She said, that's OK, Lally. You're smart. You'll find something else to do. And I thought, what? She didn't give me the, oh, my God, you've got to do this. You know, I look after the children. You can... And she didn't do any of that. She just accepted and trusted that I was making a decision based on where I was. So after that, I thought, damn it, I'll do this if it kills me. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I, I really said that. In fact, I decided I would take the advantage of their one year extra. I actually split, it's called splitting. I split twice. So I actually did med school over six years, not four. All right. Am I glad? Oh my God, yeah because I found smarter ways to learn the material. I had to take this time and I did it and I was a, a mom. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you did that because one of the things that becomes overwhelming is when you approach something with this, this is a huge thing mindset. The, the way to accomplish these things is cutting everything into the small bits, just cutting everything into smaller, smaller bits. If, if you're overwhelmed with a small bit, cut it into a smaller bit and right. do that little piece. And ultimately with your six years, that's what you did. And you did it a couple of times. And so you graduate and you're, you know, you're Dr. Pia and you're, you're getting into where where do you go from there? Are you a psychiatrist somewhere immediately? I know that there's oh, no. there's no. there's work that you have to do as right. And so um yeah, and, and and I journal like you know why I chose psychiatry. I was thinking, no way am I gonna go into psychiatry, but that's another whole story in itself. Um it's in the in the memoir. Sure. I mean coming soon to Estonia you. No, but, <laughs> but 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 the thing is that I eventually decided I set my my heart on psychiatry. And so when you finish med school, people don't realize this, but um, you have to go to a residency program. That means learning the tricks of the trade and learning the medicines and learning all of that specific to where you want to practice. So if you want to do an internal medicine, then you do a three-year residency. If you wanted to go into psychiatry, you go to a four-year residency. If you want to go into child psychiatry, 
it's either five or six years. So there are all these other boundaries before you are a doctor on your own. You're all supervised and it's a lot more learning. So it's, it's the journey is not done. So I decided I wanted to do psychiatry, which meant, and I knew I wanted child, which means six more years or five. Um, And so I decided to apply to um, various places and I applied to UC Davis and San Mateo and some other places. And I liked the San Mateo residency interview, but UC Davis would be closer for my girls who are now going to school. So guess what? I found out that I entered something called the match and I found out that I, I did not get, you have to go wherever they tell you. And I got into San Mateo, but not UC Davis. So I'm like, oh my God, I've signed into this. And I didn't want to do this. I, I, by this time, I had um, married my current husband, Tim. I've been with him for 20 something years. Uh, so I I didn't want to take the children away from where their, their close ties are. And my mom and my dad and, every, and, and my husband. Um, so bottom line is, I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to try and work somewhere else. I'm not going to go into psychiatry right now. I'll give it a year. And so I wrote um, to the, I called my uh, them up and said, I loved it, but I'm sorry, I'm not going. Um, and at the same time, I was, got, I was given two opportunities to work, um, work with autism and the Mind Center in UC Davis. Yes. And I also got a chance to go to the MPH program. So I had two things I could do that paid money. So I thought, I'll just get the money. And, and then I was sitting with that decision two weeks later. And my husband said, Lally, you know, I said, are you happy? At least I, I'm staying with you guys. You know, I'm not going anywhere. And he said, you trained all this time to be a psychiatrist. And you're throwing it away. What you wanted to do, you're throwing it away. And you know what? You made me think it over again. I'm used to thinking things over again. I thought, darn it, you mean, but what about the children? He said, they don't want to go. They don't want to go to the Bay Area. He said, I will look after those children. And I said, they aren't even your children, Tim. And he said, I will do it. We'll make it work. We'll, we, you know, you can be a mom on weekends. We'll come to the Bay Area. And we did it. I changed what my an mind. unbelievable difference here. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you what an <laughs> unbelievable difference between marriage one and marriage two. Yeah. And in marriage two, you've got this, real partner you've got the one who's going to you know grab the duffel bags and hike up the mountain right behind you absolutely that that's what you've got what an amazing human being he is he's amazing and they weren't even his children you know right yeah right right and so we made it work (laughs) well you did you did and 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 so in san mateo how long were you there three years so I was a weekends only mom for three years. Okay. And How kids, old were your kids at this point? Uh, let me see. It was 1990. Okay, 19. Sorry, 2002 to 2005, right? So Shermila would have been, she's 91, um, nine, nine years old. Oh, is that right? Am I doing the math right? 91. Um, take away. I, I'm not very good with <laughs> With subtractions, but she they were probably about nine, nine-ish, nine okay. and six, something like that. So there's a thousand reasons in your life up to yeah. this point that would have said, no, you can't. Right. No, you can't. No, you shouldn't. Right. No, you don't right. have time. I, I don't know, like, no, you're not smart enough. No, you're this, mm-hmm. th- th- these sorts of things, these roadblocks that you just keep one by one going 
I'm going to try to see if I can get to the next stage. Right. I'm going to try to see if I can do this. And at times being so weighted down that you really did want to kind of throw in the towel and you don't. And finally you get to this like breakthrough point. You've got your um, medical degree. You are, you've got this wonderful husband who just says, go do it, be it, make it happen. And you've done all of this breaking through barriers before. Now for you, you've made a habit in your life of just breaking the barriers. I'm going, I'm doing it. I'm making right. it happen. Yeah, it gets to be exhilarating. You know, after you've gone through all the trenches, it, it starts to feel like, you know what? Uh, in fact, can I read a little bit, just this first bit of the, my book? Please. Okay, so it's just something that pertains to this. It's honestly a paragraph. Um, uh, this is the book. It's the Fortune Teller's Fortune Prophecy. Teller's Prophecy, available yeah. now on audible.com. <laughs> and in bookstores soon. Okay, so I just started with what, what, I'm, what we're talking about. Um, if you fall into a dark well, hunt for a handhold. If you slip back down, you'll know where to reach next time and always lead up and into the light. That just sums up what I was feeling at that time. That is it. I just thought I have fallen so many times. Bring it on, baby. Let's go. You know. <laughs> yes. So. You know, it 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 is. It it really is that. And you know, when when you've when you've had a number of hard knocks in your life, and you have been knocked down enough, uh, it's kind of like that 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 silly '90s song. I get knocked down and I get up again. You know, the, the whole thing. And and uh, it's it's a it becomes a habit in your life, right? And getting knocked down in your in your teens and twenties, it feels like you're never going to get up again. It feels like you can't. It feels like life is too much, and and that sort of thing. But when you start making that habit of just get to the next rung of the ladder, just yeah. just get up one more rung, uh, right. it, it's 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 a profound approach to to life and what you can actually do with it. So, you know, you you go to San Mateo, you do your um, your, your work out there and, you know, your, your children are growing up into their early teen years and whatnot. Do you come back to Davis after this? Yes. So, so I did it for three years. And then, um, I, I had told myself if there was one time when I felt the kids were struggling or doing badly in school, I would quit. I was really ready to do anything for them because I think it's critical to bring up your kids at least. Right. But you know, they were resilient um, and we managed the three years. They even got into gifted programs, both of them. Um, so when I came back, I came back to Davis to do the final two years of child psychiatry. So believe it or not, you've got like, I've done six years, if you're doing the math, in med school. And then I had five years to get the child ch child training and the adult training down. And that's when you can become a psychiatrist. So it's a long road. Oh, my God. <laughs> so so I, I mean, sorry, I, I, what are we talking about? Like 11 years from... Yeah. 11 okay. years of training from med school, beginning med school to ending child psychiatry. That right, right there is something that turns people away from it oh. uh, from the very get go. And I know that I've, I've heard this a lot. Yeah, but it's a long time. Yeah. And, you know, as you get older, you just realize everything's a long time. Everything is a long time. So when you do the 11 years, every, every ounce of it is, is not easy. 
But that 11 years will pass and your where you can go from there is a sky is the limit scenario. And, and, and those 11 years, you, you are working, you're learning how to the tricks of the trade. Like I said, you're learning how, you know, when so-and-so said this, what, what did you say? Because you're writing down what you said. So you have supervision, if you will, but you're treating patients. And that's remarkably rewarding because, yes, you're learning and someone's holding your hand. But you see people get better. You start these relationships with people that mean so much to you um, it, because you realize this is not just books and silly medicines. This is people and you're changing lives. And that's that keeps you going. So it seems like a long time, but it's not just books and lectures. There's more to it than that. You're practicing being a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. supervision. Yeah. And I... I'm... I imagine through this, you know, you, mm-hmm. you you chose a difficult thing, the child and adolescent psychiatry. And as you're going through this, you're affecting change in the lives of families and children, and you begin to develop an overarching philosophy. Now, every <laughs> professional has a philosophy that they kind of like draw from. You yeah. You grew up outside of the United States. You have, you know, the bumps along the the ride that you've had and and whatnot. And you're you're serving populations that every single population has their own struggles and heartache and everything like that. And you begin to develop the kind of doctor that you're going to be. And your overarching philosophy is something that you kind of talked about at the beginning. It's about understanding the whole person, understanding the whole family, being uh, somebody who kind of really joins in with the treatment team to understand the holistic concept of everything. I know that I, I remember times when I would bring a a child in and you would meet with them for a very long period of time and then say, I don't think that medicine is the medic medication is the right stage here. Let's try this and that. And then let's come back together in a month and talk about where we're at with this and that. And your very holistic and and client-centered approach in this is something, um, can you talk a little bit about how your personal history has kind of really played into how you doctor? Yeah, well, that's a tough question. Um, how You're welcome. It's tough because it's so difficult to figure out where this would come from. It could begin as early as my childhood when I was mixed with different people from different cultures, just feeling, you know, every every time I visit a country, I'm just blown away by how they have different uh, ways that they do their culture. And it works for them. I think the more you see, so I started with this very international background of friends and we were always going, uh, I traveled the world so many times around, going from Ghana to Sri Lanka and then Sri Lanka to England and, you know, just doing all of that. And so each time, you might think I'm going way off base and trust me, I'm coming back. Um, <laughs> it, you start it. to realize that there's different ways of thinking and different cultural ways of thinking. And it just makes you, just like I said, I feel like a sponge learning and learning. And so... I don't look as an evaluation as a me to them. It's them to me. I'm absorbing the culture of their family, absorbing the culture of why they do what they do. And it's endlessly fascinating. No one person's like the other. Like when I was doing surgery, it's like, uh, this pipe is broken. Let's fix it. But I've never been drawn to that. I just love the intricacies and the depth that people provide to me. 
So I, I am utilizing this, this whole world coming to me feeling, and now it's the person coming to me, and I really feel connected. <laughs> and I have got the tools to try and see, okay, well, let's take them over this way. And I think that is just so much fun because you're creating and thinking creatively, like, forget the medicine. Okay, that helps this way. But this whole nine yards is in front of you. So I love, I love that. It really gets me going, trying to think of ways to help a family. So your parents, they sound like they've been just consistently supportive of you or uh, in, in your life. They were they were people that had to flee from political instability in Ghana. They came to the United States for their own possibilities and their own safety and these sorts of things. You ended up you know, being near them and whatnot. But all the way along the way, even though you may not have had all the traditional things happen in your life that would spell uh you know what a, a life is maybe in your in your homeland um they stuck with you they were consistently supportive and it sounds like they adjusted to the realities of your life and that that was really profoundly supportive of you to get where you are absolutely i couldn't have done it without them not not a question in fact, you know, when you when you live in different countries, you start thinking, you know, where do I belong? And, you know, I love America. <laughs> I became an American, naturalized American citizen um, when I was leaving John. Um, and you realize that you home is where the family is and nobody belongs here in America. And that that's why I fit in so well, because when I'm visiting Sri Lanka or visiting Ghana, I'm, I mean, if I, I haven't visited Ghana yet, but um, it makes you feel like you feel like a tourist on the outside because you've never truly melded there. But I love being here because the sky's the limit. And I'm so grateful that I've made it this far in this country because of, of the availabilities. If you really put your, your mind to it and work, you know, my, my sister is a civil engineer, worked for the state for a long time. My brother. My brother is an, you know, he's an internet guy, and my sister works for, um, you know, the um, uh, she she works in Cameroon, and she worked with UNICEF and World Health, and so I feel like here we came to America with just a, a sofa in my parents' house, and we've been able to all become so amazingly successful, and yet the net, the deep down, like this Thanksgiving. My four, my my three siblings and my parents were all getting together in LA. So we still have kept this all through the years. That that has become the link, the place that we can really, you know, feel supported and comforted with everyone. Um, so I, I do. In in terms of your question about family, yes, family is so important to me, and that's why I can't have too many friends. I've got work, and then I maybe if if I can handle like six good friends, I can handle that. But my family takes the rest of it, the whole nine yards. We, we're always talking to each other. And even though it's been so long since we left Ghana, we are so close together. Three of us live here and one goes back and forth to Cameroon. So <laughs> we have a, a good sense of family. And that's and, and, and some people don't get that. And so I, I realize that, especially with my patients. I'm working with low-income patients who haven't had that. And so I try to work with that, which is hard because, of course, I've never experienced what they have. What are your children up to? Uh, my oldest, Shamala, she's um, a physician. She's in um, Rochester, New York. Um, she's actually decided she wanted to go into child neurology. 
So I said, hey, you do the neuron, I'll do the psych. She's, she's going to come back to California to finish that um, uh, one more year, and then she's going to be a child neurologist. Um, really? My daughter, Shanti, who's younger, she's in Santa Cruz, California, and um, she's becoming a great, amazing mother of two children. So oh, I have two grandchildren. Yeah, and so she comes. It's much, much closer for her to come visit. She's an accomplished piano player, makes people cry when she plays Chopin. So I'm proud of them both. I'm so proud yes. of my girls. Well, and 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 Santa Cruz is just such a uniquely beautiful place. Yeah, they live in Astos. It's lovely there. Yeah, just she she's really a person of the earth. I'm, I'm so glad and bringing up my my grandchildren that way. So we, when they come to visit, we just lie on the on the on the hammock and look up at the trees. And I'm so glad she's bringing them up without you know da 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 da. da. You know, <laughs> we need the sense of connection. It's so so huge for children to learn this early yeah so, yeah it yeah. it makes it makes a huge difference the uh, children who have a lot of technology in their lives and children who generally have it very limited in their lives you can see the emotional maturity in the ones that have it very strategically limited to them you know we're we're seeing so many children right now who are so emotionally underdeveloped. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that in our modern age, but uh, the delayed gratification is something that is not happening with a lot of kids. They constant, constant stimuli of a very high and addictive nature for the brain. And uh, children's health, children's emotional health is being affected in a way that is just ghastly. And I know that in my county, which is a relatively small county by population, there's been a number of suicides that are of, of teenagers where nobody saw it coming. And late one night, sometimes even while gaming or something like that, a child will do something and uh, to themselves and sometimes the other gamers are like, is this real? Is this what's really going on right now? Uh, but the children's have these children, they have such a short span for frustration, such a mm -hmm. short uh, frustration tolerance, yes. you know, uh, and and so the the propensity for emotional problems seems to be going up so profoundly. Right. And I'm sure that you're seeing that uh, as well. I know I see it on my side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I will start by saying that the reason I'm staying and loving my job is that children do get better, no matter where they are, no matter how I it's keeping me motivated that these kids are getting better. So even when they walk in the first day, I you know, the, uh, the excrement may be hitting the fan. I still say, you know what, over some time, I'm going to be trying to take you off your medicines. And things are going to get better if you come in, if you take your pills like you. So I, I, I give them that first sort of things are going to get better. But in terms of your um, question about people tolerating, not tolerating, um, I mean, you have to have things buzz, you know, but it's, it's happening to our society, myself included. Oh, there's a thing from your cell phone. So we are getting so ready for instant gratification, as you point out. Um, and, and what's worse is, you know, I know the studies are not showing that video games are doing 
uh, are directly correlated with um, homicidal behavior. But I, even in the time I've been practicing, I see, I'm seeing more homicidal kids. Is it because, you know, I've had to call the police many a time, but I'm seeing this and I think it's, it's very intriguing to figure out what may be causing it. But I think the lack of this warm social family, if you will, is causing a lack of empathy. The immediate gratification is, hip, give it to me. Not, hey, I'm going to meet these friends. We're going to talk. I care what you say. Um, we are becoming less empathic. Um, it's, well, the children are that are given this kind of a background. So I worry about that. Um, in terms of suicides, they say there's only two kinds of psychiatrists, ones that have had a patient suicide and ones that are going to have a patient suicide. So far, touch wood, um, I haven't had a patient suicide, but it's important to, to, to realize that part of it is really getting to know what they're thinking about and spending that time to, to follow their thoughts. So um, it, it's very, very tricky. But um, I, I'm trying to remember what your original question was because I took it away from you. <laughs> no, you, you you definitely followed the thread there. Um, okay. So yeah. overarching in your life, um, a lot of people are listening to this podcast who are at the beginning of making major decisions in their lives. And there's a lot of internal voices of discouragement that mm -hmm. so many people face the I'm not good enough, the that's too big, the I don't think that I have enough support for that sort of thing. What is it from your life experience that you would impart to people who are deciding whether, you know, swinging at the ball right now is a good idea for them um, and that they might feel a little bit discouraged at at making a big goal? Yeah. I would say you'd have to first look deep inside of yourself. Um, what truly makes me happy? Such, such a simple question. What truly makes me happy? Is it the time I do this? Is it these people I work with? Is it that? So you've got to identify for yourself what is driving you to get that goal and what's in your way. So bottom line is I really figure that once someone has decided for themselves, I'm so happy doing this, um, they need to then look at what obstacles are in the way. Is it the lack of time? Is it the lack of, you know, and so you can, from there, you can generate a whole bunch of different things that are stopping you from being there. But I would start with asking someone to look inside and say, or, or, or the other way is like, what am I not liking about where I am in life right now? If I could spend a few minutes let me just list them. This, 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 right? And then problem solve with a therapist if necessary, with a father, with a mother, with um, whoever, with a, you know, a therapist helped me understand when I was having that bad relationship, meeting with that therapist. I've only met them once in my life. Help me understand. It's okay to think this guy's a jerk. You need to go, you know? And it just gave me that freedom to make that decision because somebody heard me and, and I took the time to get that person to listen to my story. I'm, I'm not being selfish, I'm just getting uh, someone to help me. So I would say that there's many different people you can identify that can help. If there's no one in your sphere, you can get a therapist to help you, maybe a psychiatrist who might help you. It's just a matter of trying to identify your supports and, and what's standing in the way of getting your goals. But the sky's the limit. Okay, it really is. 
It really is. <laughs> Dr. Lolly Pia, your story is one of inspiration. It's one of, it's so human in that your, your next stage was never quite written. You simply grabbed a hold of the next opportunity and you just made it happen. Your life has been a sequence of muscle and work and making sure that the next stage of your life is something that you um, assume control over and your, your, your grace and your ability to overcome challenges in your life is something that is so incredibly inspiring. And I'm so happy that you came here after all of these years of friendship to tell your story. And thank you for being on Mindful Mutiny. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate you doing this. So listeners, you know how they say that when you read the book that it's way better than the movie? That's the case here. This was a crash course on Dr. Lolly Pia's life. Go get the book. It is available. The Fortune Tellers, the Fortune Tellers Prophecy. It's on audible.com right now. And Dr. Pia, it's going to be April 30th of 2024 that this is going to be out on hardback. Is that what is that how it That's works? Right. Yeah, it's going to the paperback is out in thirty the 30th of April. Gotcha. And but the but the audible is available now. Me, me narrating and my husband is the sound engineer. Enjoy. <laughs> Fabulous. I'm gonna have to talk to you about that because I, I've got a book okay. coming out too. Cool. So so everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a review on my podcast wherever you are listening because that really, really helps. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO of High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great.